what, man? I don't know, John. These dimes I got this afternoon, they're not like American dimes, man. What are you talking about? American dimes are the smallest of all our coins. Yet they have greater value. That makes sense here. Jack. I know that. Get the money. They're bigger than pennies and nickels, so they're heavier, man. I don't know what I'm holding here. I've never hit anyone in the head with European dimes, man. I don't want to kill anyone. Heads are less hard than you usually hit people. Yeah, but how much? I don't want to do it too light, man. Then she's just standing there, looking back at me. Uh, says, how? Then arrest me. I haven't done a dry run with these. I worked up a nice touch over the years with American dimes. I just wish I was back home, John. That's all. And I think the lady knows I'm an American. I'm bigger than everything here. missed the soulful sounds of Vashti Bunyan. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Macmillan Men. This is the podcast where we talk about the Amazon Prime show Patriot. We have arrived at episode one of season two, American Dimes. My name's Luke Burbank. Just over there is a uh, fellow Macmillan Men and uh, a person who, well, he, he's always trying to taunch whelm with a certain amount of confidence, and I think um, I think he's going to find that this season of our review of Patriot. His name is Andrew Walsh. He's joining me right now. Hello. Hello. Is everybody excited for at least eight more episodes of me saying Tom when I mean John and John when I mean Tom? Because I that feel is like how deep the cover is is that even <laughs> to the viewers of the TV show we're confused about who's whom. Uh, I was also trying to remember Tunchwelm. Tunchwelm off the top of my head. That is because. Uh, Stephen Conrad, the creator of Patriot, uh, tweeted out the other day that he he just was missing the Leslie Claret character. And so he is writing, I hope to God, it, it's not the entire Structural Dynamics of Flow book, but at least some amount of it. And he's going to have Kurtwood Smith, a.k.a. Leslie Claret, actually read an audiobook of of the Structural Dynamics of Flow. And there's just this little, he created a kind of a Wix page for Leslie Claret. Which, by the way, is probably the web service Leslie Claret would use. Yes, and and I think it says something like "Tonchwelm with confidence." Or something. I was wondering what you're talking about, Tonchwelm. I didn't know what that meant. But anyway, um, I'm excited about that. But I'm also excited to be back living in the Patriot verse. Um, now, just to update people and maybe some new listeners, some people that aren't familiar with us, we also host this other podcast. It's called TBTL. And um, I don't know, maybe a year ago or so, I saw a tweet from Dan Harmon, the creator of Community and Rick and Morty, and he just had mentioned in passing this show Patriot and how good it was. And I thought, okay, I guess I'll check it out because I like what's the stuff that Dan Harmon makes. And I was immediately turned off by the name of Patriot and also by the artwork that's associated with the show when you go on Amazon. It's like... Um, the uh, John Tavner character, uh, a.k.a. Michael Dorman, kind of floating in water or something, at least season one is. And I thought, oh, great. Another 
spy show that I'm not interested in. Of course, it was anything but. And when I started watching it, I got obsessed. I told you about it, Andrew. And it was one of those rare times where you weren't withholding with me, where you didn't pretend to not like something just because you knew I wanted you to like it. And I appreciated that because your enthusiasm was also intense for this show. My memory is different. My memory is that I discovered this show on my own, and then I told Mm -hmm. you to watch it, and you refused for, Uh I believe, up to a year, maybe even 18 months. That was going to be the reveal, Andrew. (laughs) Much like the show Patriot, this podcast jumps around in time. We leave out key pieces of information, and the plan was going to be when... When, like, I don't know, three, four episodes in, people learned that you actually told me about the show the whole time. That's right. I am also a little distracted because I knew that Stephen Conrad was uh, tweeting about starting this Leslie Claret book. And you would, well, I knew that again because you told me about it the other day. Why uh, did you tell me about it? <laughs> we'll find out. Um, what I didn't realize, I'm just back on the website now because you were making the um, plate taunch and taunch whelm with confidence jokes That's that I it. didn't quite get. Yes. But I didn't realize that you can download an excerpt of the book. He's already um, got, did you already read this? He's already got a foreword, no. a uh, table of contents, and it looks like chapter one. I'm going to read to you just for a second and we'll start. Talking about the show that we're here to talk about. Chapter one, flute jousts. My father, (laughs) Dan Claret, was an alcoholic. So was mom, June Claret. So, yes, I made a million little wishes. And I have lived with tension like it was my twin. Tension. Will Dan show for my Pony League baseball regionals? Will Dan tonight, with zero provocation, punch me in the throat? He's talking about his dad. Uh, oh, okay. So anyway, you were saying Dan. I was confused. I thought there was another character named Dan. No, my father, Dan Claret, was an alcoholic. Anyway, oh. it's amazing. He's starting this book, The Structural Dynamics of Flow, which is going to be a lot of tech talk. But it's clear that he still uh, does have a bit of the heart and soul of a poet. So he'll be weaving in a lot of, uh, it seems like, biography into here. Man, Steven is going to have fun with this project. We have to get him on the you show. You get the sense just from hearing that little bit you were reading that like basically Stephen Conrad is an almost sort of like bottomless well of creativity as it relates to these characters, probably uh, especially in the category of Leslie Claret. Mm-hmm. And there was no way that this could all be involved. In, this could all, all be worked into Leslie Claret's backstory or screen time on the show because it would just be like this would be a 35 seasons of just Leslie Claret's backstory. And so he had he this had to come out somewhere. And this is where it's coming out. And I am as uh, as the kids stopped saying years ago, I'm extremely here for that. Well, um, I won't read any more of it because I think it. I, I was just enjoying it kind of in the moment. I don't know if it really translated well with me trying to read it. But I will say this does – you and I have had a lot of conversations with people that we work with and people that we don't work with about why we're doing this show. And there are definitely some people who say, wow, if you're going to create a spinoff podcast about a TV show, couldn't you have picked one that's popular, <clears throat> one that a lot or of people canceled. are already watching, or one that is not canceled? And you and I keep saying we just – don't quite believe it's over yet. In yeah. some way, whether we have to wait five years, ten years, or the rest of our lives, I just feel like it's not done yet. And to me, Stephen Conrad tweeting out coincidentally this week or maybe late last week that he's going to write a book in this universe really tells me that he's not done with this universe yet either. And he's not done with Leslie. And there, I say this as a joke sometime, but he truly feels like there's more story to be told. 
Yeah. Well, hopefully in some small little way, this podcast will um, help that sort of create that buzz campaign uh, that uh, will get the show picked up by, um, you know, another network or something. Of course, that was the the goal with season one of this podcast, and I believe we made zero impact. So, um, you know, here's to another meaningful year of us talking about these episodes of Patriot. Again, which brings us to season two, episode one, American Dimes, as you heard in that opening piece of audio, Jack Birdbath uh, has come to uh, Paris. Wait, are they in Paris or are they in Brussels or uh, again or Luxembourg rather? When we pick this story up, I believe they are leaving the train. I hope I'm right about this. My understanding is they're 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 getting on a train in Luxembourg and heading towards ah. Paris. And I believe it's explained later on. Um, Tom explains it during a clip of his um, deposition that leaving from Paris gives a traveler many more options of places to fly uh, to. Yes. So, the you know, where we left off season one was, is uh, John going to jump onto the train and take that bag away from Agathe? She's got all the money. She is, I mean, that's, I have to say, that was a real um, surprising moment at the end of that episode to find out for all of her sort of like, um, you know, extreme rule following behaviors and her sort of, uh, you know, she just seems like the sort of Boy Scout of the show. Um, there she's actually, it turns out, interested in getting this bag of money. And so we don't know what John's going to do. We pick it up season two and uh, we realize that because uh, Ed has been uh, kidnapped, now he's going to have to go get that money, which sends this whole thing kind of uh, a whole series of events happening. Um, and then also we find out that Birdbath has come along with him and that Birdbath has got this bag of, of European dimes that he's supposed to use to conk someone on the head. I guess it's the physicist's wife. If the bag were to get to the physicist's wife, the plan was for Birdbath to conk her on the head. Um, but as we heard in that piece of tape, he's a little unfamiliar working with this different currency, these different sized dimes. And of course, that will lead to uh, all kinds of things later on in the episode. Yes. A a couple of small points. You know, I like to start this show like I start every show with some of the least important, least interesting points. So in that vein, um, do you remember late last season? I was very confused when a get said something to her little girl about, quote unquote, your sister. She says something about your. And I said, wait, this little girl has a sister. We. Haven't seen a sister. Did I misunderstand that? I believe I rewatched that part over and over to make sure um, that I was hearing it right. Well, a little bit more information on that in this episode. So clearly, a get is on one train. Her uh, a get's sister and a get's daughter, as an aunt and niece, are on another train. I get the impression that they're both headed towards Paris for a reunion could be wrong about that but it sounds like the final destination at least for the little girl is london because there's a snippet of conversation on the phone where her mom says are you excited to go to london to see your sister so apparently this whole time she's had another daughter a has in london and also the daughter says um my aunt says we might pass each other so that indicates to me they're going to be going in opposite directions oh you're right and we see as a matter of fact it's one of the most beautiful shots of the show we see the two trains pass On a bridge. It's such a great shot. And the little girl um, does mention that we'll be able to see you from the train. So you're right. They must not be. So Aget is going somewhere different than where her daughter and sister are going. 
Um, but we still don't know like what a get's motivation is or what her end game is. No, no, and 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 to not to jump to the end of this episode, but there's there's like another kind of like huh moment at the there's a point where a get and we'll get to it does the opposite of what I'm expecting her to do as a character mm-hmm. uh, later on. But yeah, so you've got you've got John who's just I mean, and I don't know if I'm ready for the rest of season two, Andrew, because. I one of the things about season one that stressed me out was just the deterioration of of uh you know uh John Tavner's like physical body. Mm-hmm. He's just he's just getting more hurt with every episode. He's like he can barely see. He's just, I mean he's fall he's jumping off the sides of buildings. He's just like just one thing after another and he's just sort of ever onward and and it's no different at the beginning of this episode cuz he can't really see anything. He's still super jacked up, but now he's basically he realizes that Aget's daughter is on another train, and that somehow hatches a plan for him. Now, that was a thing I, I was a little confused by. So he's looking at Aget. She is on the phone with her daughter. The daughter says the thing about, um, you know, we're going to pass each other. Is the idea that he hears that, and, and he speaks French, and he understands the implications, and for whatever reason, instead of going after Aget, that's where he gets the idea to go after the daughter? I don't know. I'm very confused, but that was the best I could come up with as well. I don't know okay. how he would have overheard. I guess he would have only had to overhear a get's side of the conversation to make that conclusion. Because it doesn't seem. It seems like he would have had to hear the little girl side of the conversation, right? Right. And I'm just wondering if the of the idea is that it's so loud that he can hear it, or because otherwise <laughs> it just seems like the logical thing would be for him to just go after a get. I mean, that's where the bag is. That's the thing he needs. Um, uh, but for whatever reason, he ends up walking, you know, down to a, a different train, and that's where he sees the daughter. And then he goes on this thing where he's got to run, I guess, to the next station or something, mm-hmm. or he's got to run around and get to that train. He gets on that train and uh, and starts following her. Um, I that that the the tape that you opened with, I don't know. That might have been. There was a bunch of favorite moments of this episode for me, but just that moment with like, Birdbath is so out of his element, and when he says. She knows I'm American. I'm bigger than everything. Yeah, that, that line just, stood out to me. It just says so much about. That's why I love this show. And it just says so much about the America and Europe, and it just it's it's there's a lot packed into that line. Yeah, and he's it, it, visually it's funny because the whole conversation he's kind of wedged into a sm, a smallish space on the train in like some sort mm-hmm. of a passageway, and it doesn't jump out to you that he's kind of jammed in there. But when he says it, suddenly you're just like, oh yeah, you're really jammed in there, aren't you, big guy? Yeah, and John's kind of annoyed with him, which I don't know. I mean. John's just trying to get from each moment to the next, but it's I, I of course I'm kind of protective of Birdbath. I'm like, dude, like, why don't you like be nice to him? Like he's trying his best here. Even this is really far this is way out of his comfort zone. Which brings us to this moment uh that you and I had discussed as possible intro tape, which is as Birdbath is is kind of being, I guess, uh I- you know, interviewed or post morted on this whole thing. Not unlike what happens with Tom Tavner a lot in this show where he's obviously explaining what happened to somebody. There's that really another kind of profound moment where they're asking Birdbath, like, why'd you come to Europe with John? And he basically says, well, he asked me if I was better than nothing. He asked me, I think he said he asked me to help. And I think I said, I don't, I don't have anything to offer. And he says, are you better than nothing? Right. And that's how it gets to that. Are you better than nothing? And man, oh man, if anybody out there who's struggled with kind of self-esteem issues, which is probably 
all of us, mm-hmm. <laughs> whether we admit it or not. Like that, just him walking around the block trying to decide if he is, in fact, if his participation is actually better or worse than nothing. And also, of course, if he as a person has any value. That was intense, man. That really hit me hard. Yeah, I really love that tape. Is it worth taking a listen to this? Yes, Um, it is. Let me set it up a little bit. So this is sort of um, the beginning is shot like a montage you're seeing several things happen at once including john running through these train stations trying to catch the little girl's train um and meanwhile they do this really cool uh split screen uh where uh different things are happening in different quadrants but we do see birdbath getting deposed and again i think this is just an interesting thing too so far the only thing we knew from season one was that at some point in the future there's going to be a deposition so we know that the jig is up at some point, right? Is it gig is up or jig is up? I always said gig. I, that's I think that's a regional thing. I don't know. I've I've heard it both ways. Okay, I like to say gig, so I'm going to say the gig is up. Sure. I said jig because I thought I was being proper, but I say jif. The, the dot <laughs> jif is up. Okay, so the JPEG is up. Um, <laughs> and I always thought it was interesting. So we know that something has happened where Tom gets deposed in the future. Well, we now know that whatever whatever is found out, we know that Birdbath is wrapped up in it, too, because he's being deposed. So that's why uh, you'll be hearing him talk here kind of over music. This is part of a montage. Whack a lady on the head with a sock full of dimes. What? Yeah, that was the plan. In the event that this lady got the bag. I was what you'd call a fail-safe if this lady got the bag. Then the plan changed. In what sense? In the sense that a different lady got the bag. Can you back up a little? Well, he came to me for help. In Luxembourg? In Milwaukee. The night before they departed for Luxembourg, he came to my house. And asked for help. Yeah. Why you? I don't know the answer to that. What did you tell him? I told him I didn't think I could be of much help to him in um, the state I was in then. And his response? He asked if I was better than nothing. Which I guess was what he had in terms of help. And your response to that? thought about it for a while about whether you were better than nothing yeah and I asked him if I could take a walk around the block and think about it because I just couldn't say in those moments and your conclusion well on my walk I stopped wondering about that in particular and I started thinking about something else in particular. Which was? Which was how the kid just really looked like he needed help, I guess. Hmm. So that's where I think these guys are going to bond. Yeah. Like, both of these guys met at rock bottom, <laughs> essentially. Yeah. And it's sort of like, you know, Birdbath needs to be needed at this point. I mean, he was, when we met him in season one, he was fully ready to die. And... I think that the idea that there is someone who needs his help gives him some sort of, uh, you know, raison d'etre, as they might say in Luxembourg. Um, Can I just mention that, you know, it didn't even occur to me. That's right. You have have Birdbath, who is at such a low point that he essentially is 
kind of hiring or setting up John to kill him. You have Robert, John's um, musician partner, who apparently commits suicide in the first season. And that's why, and, th- and I think both of those are also kind of like reflections of what John is going through. John is clearly bottoming out. And I hate to say it, Luke, as somebody who's watched this whole season, it doesn't get better. I don't assume that you thought it was going to. I didn't. I don't think you mm-hmm. thought that episode two and three was John's going to snap out of his depression after he ends yeah. the <laughs> after he ends the mission and then he just retires and him and Alice are happy forever. That's not the rest yeah. of the season. After he bends the Vantager Danger Meridian to the point of breaking it, that that's not going to. Right. That's not going to um, lead to ultimate happiness for him. By the way, that makes an appearance. I think that's the first appearance in the show, right? But then later there's a whole episode named for that, I believe. Or was that earlier in the show? Speaking of having a hard time with the timeline, when that gets mentioned in this episode, is that the first time we've heard that? Remind me what it is again. I thought you were just throwing some Leslie Claret shit at me. No, this is actually a Tom Tavner shit. It's the the Vantager Danger Meridian, and it's basically this... I'm sure it's made up by Stephen Conrad, but it's theoretically this sort of cost-benefit analysis about doing dangerous things, such as, as later will happen to John, or, or as uh, you know, Tom Taverner will try to make him basically go into this compound and take this guy out by himself. And he says to his dad, again, I've sort of jumped fully to the end of the show now, but he mentions this Vantage, uh, Vantager Danger Meridian as this like mm. way of trying to mathematically figure out if something is a truly mm. terrible idea that's going to lead to your death. Does that come up in the um, in the diner at the very end? I Somehow I don't recall that. Yeah, it's just mentioned briefly. There's, a, I believe that there's an episode, maybe the one after this, There's because mm. I got a couple episodes into the second season, and I think one is just literally named for that principle, which again is just one of those, assuming it's not a real thing, mm-hmm. it's one of those just beautiful things that Stephen Conrad's weird brain has made up mm-hmm. that just takes on all this seriousness in the show. Um, okay, so uh, we've got Birdbath on the train. He's trying to figure out what to do. He does. I was so proud of him, too, when he kissed that lady on the head. Um, and it's cool. He's so proud of himself that he did something kind of subterfuge right? Because he's sitting across from Agat. Now, by the way, Birdbath, if you don't want to stand out, don't stare deeply into yeah. Agat's eyes with unbroken... Right. Eye contact, because that, believe me, is probably tipping her off. But then he kind of like he sort of gets this brainstorm and he reads like leans over and kisses this woman's head as if it's like his wife or something. And it's funny because he's just so excited to tell John about that because he feels like he did a good one. Yes, I know. He's so bright. It's so awkward. He definitely has a You know, some people have problems with not enough eye contact. Some people maybe though <laughs> overdo it. He definitely overdoes it even during the. Um, deposition that I was just talking about like he just stares straight ahead the whole time he definitely doesn't come off as shifty I'll give him that also I did just find an article from some sort of a um, scholarly journal called the Van Tasner Danger Meridian Efficient Tool for Predicting Whoa. Danger now there you go the second reference Is it written though, by Leslie Claret though here's the de- that's what I'm trying to figure out here because everything else does seem to be pointing back to Patriot, and I'm wondering if this is a. I, I'm using this word a deep jokingly, fake. but like a a a, f- a fun natured deep fake. But it's credited to Brian Van Tasner. Um, but I, my guess is I'm wondering if this is something that a a super fan made up because of because of the show. I can't tell. It's way too scholarly. Yeah, I'll tell you this. 
uh, credit to the show that we don't know the difference between the reality yes. and the show because of how just kind of like perfectly cr- constructed this this their reality is. Right. So so you got birdbaths on the train, and then we're cut to Leslie's at the hospital, and he is realizing that there are inconsistencies between John's story and Tom's story, including that John told him he was an only child, and Tom's talking about uh, you know John's brother, and Leslie's having this kind of like real sort of epiphany that he's been lied to, which then, of course, he follows up by just seriously blazing up an IV bag of 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 mind altering um, relaxation. And I'll tell you, as a person who, uh, you know, who knows how sort of like in the moment, how relieving it can be sometimes to sort of have some chemical alter your state of mind. They really nail that scene, I think, as he just kind of sits back and like lets that warmth wash over him, something he's not really engaged in for a long time because of his, you know, being in sobriety. Yeah, and it's also really heartbreaking because that's also at some point around here we get a flashback of what happened right before he got shot in the face by John, which is he had just finished a conversation with his son who um, he'd been estranged from, his adult son Mm -hmm. uh, and his adult son's family. And, uh, you know, they're estranged because of Leslie's addiction and all the issues that uh, came along with that addiction years ago. And he's really been trying to make it right. He's been sober for years now. He calls his son mm. g- good-naturedly, but doesn't know his son is on vacation in Paris. So his son, who kind of comes off as a bit of a jerk towards his dad, but we mm. also see that his dad was somebody who once, I believe, put him in a stranglehold at the Thanksgiving table. Um, mm-hmm. You know, he's like, you woke everybody up. What do you want? And Leslie just says, I just really want to make amends. I want to say I'm sorry right now. And can you, will you please let me come visit you? I've been clean and sober for a long time. Please just give me this. And the son says, fine. When we're back home, we'll set something up. Sounds great. Cut to seconds later. John shoots yeah. him in the face with a shotgun for the sake of the mission because he needs Leslie to stay behind so that he can get into Luxembourg. And now where's Leslie in the hospital starting his drug stealing, habit again? Stealing someone else's, <laughs> eventually someone else's, you know, bag of whatever is in that IV bag. Yeah, you're right. That's a good point. I mean, it's like uh, he was just right. I mean, he even says it's like pretty spelled out there. He's like, you know, things are doing good. I'm running Macmillan men again. I'm almost things are. I think he says things are almost good mm-hmm. or something like he's he's finally crawled back up to almost being where he was when he lost everything. And then you shot me, you know, um, and you could tie that back to Tom. Uh, you know, the reason John has to do this stuff is because, yes, Tom sucked him in. And, you know, I think we're supposed to consider this. I could be wrong, but I think part of this is when you look at a mission like this, John and Tom both have to, in the course of their jobs and their missions, have to make a bunch of little cost-benefit analyses, right? Saying, I I need to do this thing that seems terrible in the moment, but it's for the greater good. And in this case, again, the greater good is to keep you know, nuclear weapons out of the hands of Iran, right? Or Iranian leaders or keep this, keep this dangerous guy out of uh, control in the country. And so there are so many awful things that both of these men have to do. Mostly John has to do, uh, but it's justified because the, the, the critical mission is so critical for world peace, let's say. Um, 
and as the show goes on though you see what uh, how much damage this mission is causing other people specifically Leslie and i'm not making the argument that it's it's not worth it you know let's say ruining one guy's relationship with his adult son but it really is like this whirling dervish of destruction that this mission is just blazing a path of across several different countries now and leslie unfortunately is taking the brunt of most of it well because i've decided to do this whole episode in the least kind of um linear way possible let me just say that for me, one of the greatest moments of catharsis in this whole show, season one and now one episode into season two, is when Alice Tavner calls Tom a coward. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, finally someone is saying – so finally someone is saying what I think, you know, people listen to the first season of this show will know that I'm pretty down on Tom Tavner's parenting skills. And like – I, finally, someone's calling him out for the fact that he just acts like there's no alternative other than to put his son. And by the way, Ed Edward is tied up somewhere. God knows where. But let's just focus on John. Tom acts as if the only option is for his son, John, to be in constant mortal danger over his bad decision making. And it's like it doesn't even occur to him to apologize to him or to try to mitigate it or to like just suck it up and go to jail like none of those things and i think alice very accurately calls tom a coward yeah and we'll i I think we're going to continue to see some of that uh cowardice as uh we go forward i'm by the way on a structural note i'm not super concerned about talking about these episodes in chronological order the show doesn't tell the story in chronological order yeah um so i i think that's fine let me ask you a question this is very unprofessional but i'm just curious about something have you seen the episode yet? This is an upcoming episode somewhere in season two. I watched this a year or two ago, so I don't remember exactly the order of things. But have you seen the episode where John has to acquire a gun and his dad is there to help him? Um, okay. I, 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 I'm thinking I have, but I've forgotten most of it. I okay. think is this – are you alluding to a moment where basically it becomes clear that Tom has never himself actually committed any violence? Yes. That, so that's what – yes. I so do remember that We scene. are building up to a scene where we really see Tom laid bare as far as yes. his ability to step up using his own body when need be. Well, and then the moment where Alice absconds with Agathe's daughter and is trying to – take her back and then tom and john are just in the diner with the dog and and then john says uh uh you know it's or or tom says it's just you and me and the dog he's a good boy he won't leave Mm. and then this is so intense yes then john's like yeah i think he's just been trained it's like omg john is the dog yes tom says he's a good boy and john says i think he's just been trained and then the camera just stays on those two for a while, and you're like, oh, shit. Is John a good boy, or has John just been trained? Or That's certainly how he's John is been, feeling right now. He's been right basically now. brainwashed yep. by Tom, at least yep. at the, this point in the show. That's the only logical kind of conclusion that I can draw is that he has just been and, – and Tom has this very – like, I feel I, – I really – now, maybe I'm just in a mood – but I really feel like Tom is actually the villain in this show. And I don't know if that becomes more apparent as the season goes on or maybe he pumps the brakes and it's, you know, the like uh, the, the physicist is the real villain. But as of right now, if you want to if I'm I Tom Tavner's the villain of this show in my mind, because he has this kind of Svengali 
BS way of talking. He's trying to do it to Alice where he says, like, he does this thing where he's unfazed. Like, when Alice says you're a coward, a lot of people would be like, how dare you call me that? He just says, like, I'm paraphrasing here, but something to the effect of, like, uh, this is a position I'm in a lot. This is normal. And I'm often accused of things. I He's like, just, he doesn't, like, ever concede that he's a coward. He doesn't get mad at her. He just keeps with this weird kind of very, like not aggressive banter where he's not changing his and it's like it feels very intentional and gross to me mm-hmm. yeah um i agree with all of that i i also want to mention here while all of this is going on um <laughs> while all of this is going on we also have something going on in luxembourg where um we have a stark naked um i'm dennis mcclearan oh yeah <laughs> who is in the police station and hmm. everything we've talked about so far, most of which has happened at, let's say at this point in the, in the episode, it's all really heavy, right? Like the train stuff mm-hmm. is very heavy. Even the, the conversation about the dimes is kind of funny, but it's still pretty heavy. Things yeah. get like the first time Dennis McLaren opens his mouth in this episode. I felt, oh, my God, I forgot how much I missed this show and how much I missed this man. And, like, it just (laughs) – there's something about that character, and I believe that we got to credit the actor, uh, and that's Stephen Conrad's brother, right? Is it Michael? It's not Michael. Chris Conrad. Chris Conrad um, for just – I don't know, man, just creating a – fantastic fully developed fully realized character that just i i can't i can't explain it It felt like a homecoming the second he opened his mouth to say can i get some pants um uh, not to make this not to turn this into a promotional vehicle for stephen conrad's other show which is called uh, perpetual grace limited but of course chris conrad's also in that and he is a wildly different character who's bought his a wildly different body type even yeah and it gives me it only gives me more respect for 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 Chris Conrad overall uh just as an actor but yeah no he is so great in that I don't think I realized he apparently speaks French or understands French because that's this kind of weird moment where it's like it's it's him it's uh uh you know um I forget his uh his name the the brother of the the guy who's who's of course been garroted and tipped over mm-hmm. the side of the boat the bagman's brother um, is what I call him the bagman's brother is there and then wait, who's the other guy? One of There's the Brazilians. The One of the Brazilian. Oh, right, brothers. right. A Barrio, a, a Barrios brother, mm-hmm. and and like they're you know that guy. I'll tell you this, and I don't want to. We do not come here to necessarily be overly critical of it, but if there's one character so far that I'm kind of like, okay, we get it. It's this. I I wish they would dial this French or this this Luxembourgian inspector. I wish they would dialed him back ten percent. The guy mm. with the long hair, kind of heavy set. The cool guy, we're in the cool guy club, and these, you know, like, it's a little on the nose, uh, or, I mean, it's not on the nose, it's not on any nose, it's like a random character that's, of course, been created in the genius mind of Stephen Conrad, but it was like, it was about 10% more than I needed from him, and it kind of took me out of it a little bit. You know, it's... um, it's not brand new with him right now. There is something that is, that is even more over the top and surreal about all of the men in the police station. We saw a little bit of it mm-hmm. in one of the last episodes of season one where they're tr- – you remember the one cop is trying to just get rid of a bunch of stuff out of the evidence locker and he's just trying to like store it somewhere without actually logging it. And, and, right. and he has this weird conversation upstairs that's very circular and both surreal and comical and they just keep leaning further and further into it where all of them 
the men at like the show obviously has a has a great sense of humor, but you are right that it is most kind of broad. Can something be both broad and surreal at the same time? I'm not sure, but the, just the fact that they called them the um, uh, cool guy, yeah. <laughs> it, it, well, the 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 women, the men call oh. uh, in a degrading fashion. They call it the the skirts and stockings club or some department right. I think and he said now we are the department of tough cool guys which is kind right, of funny okay. but it is very yeah. very broad and it's going to continue to be yeah. that way sure well so you're right though that scene with Dennis where he's just sitting there naked and then I will say this having just been like it was a little much I do like the conversation about whether or not a belt is a piece of clothing yes Zappos gets invoked <laughs> yeah, that's, like a, pretty, that's right. like a pretty funny moment he finds it under accessories by the way one quick reminder about um, about Dennis's ability to speak to speak or at least understand French is I think they established that he speaks a lot of languages in the first season because he also is an uh, he's a translator um, for wasn't that with the was it was the Brazilians he was translating for on behalf of John yes you're right and yes because he was in the other room right but he was doing a bad job of it he was translating it but then adding like curse words in there and saying yes. tough guy stuff that john was not telling yes. him to say right so that's actually also kind of a funny like that's a funny thing they've thrown in for dennis's character is that he's a real uh polyglot yeah i mean he's <laughs> not an idiot like that's the funny thing right. like a lot of these characters are are dumb in interesting ways john is dumb in some ways right but none of them are yeah. just straight up idiots um, so the, 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 you knew the American dimes, or I should say, you knew that the, um, European dimes were going to play a pivotal role. And there's this just beautiful moment. I mean, beautifully dumb moment where Birdbath is, he's gotten off the train. He's about to intercept Agathe at this corner. Now they're in Paris, I guess, but he just is worried about, he doesn't want to kill her, but he also doesn't want to hit her so lightly that she's just annoyed and like arrests him. <laughs> so he tests the dimes on himself. And of course he knocks himself out with the dimes, which I forgot um, about this whole time. I read, I remembered the bit about American dimes weighing less. As a matter of fact, I, I like the line. We heard it in the intro tape, but it goes by pretty quickly. He says something like, no, the dimes make sense here. He like starts by saying in America the right. dimes are worth more, but they're the smaller than pennies and nickels. Which and he just, says they again, make sense to, here. Not to like and who knows if it was your friend Sean Hurley or if it was Stephen Conrad or whoever it might have been, but like I, somebody who is involved in the writing of this show has had that thought at some yeah, point. Why are right. dimes worth more if they're smaller? Yes. You know what I mean? That thought has just been swimming around in someone's brain probably for years. And this, it finally found a home in this episode, and I salute it. It's almost Seinfeldian, right? Totally. Yeah. 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 Um, so then also, I'll just mention, they use this Flying Burrito Brothers song. Um, one of the things I'll give Amazon some props on, even though they're kind of the evil empire in a lot of ways, uh, and also a place that I order many items from and watch many TV shows that are created by them. Uh, I do like that you can kind of like every time you pause it, it just shows you every th- piece of information you need to know about mm-hmm. the shot, the like who every actor is, what any music that's playing is. It's very convenient that way. And I find myself doing it a lot with this show. I get the sense Stephen Conrad is a real music guy. You know, he's got that um, he's got that band that he's in. And uh, it's the sister isn't called like the sisters band or something. And uh, and, and he's a um, you know, he's a musician himself. 
you can tell he really likes music because they always use some of these weird deep cuts, including oh, we didn't even, we kind of glossed over the credits. Maybe we can talk about that in a minute. But I heard I heard this song and I was like, what is this? I like this a lot. I hit pause. It's the Flying Burrito Brothers. I googled them. I had always dismissed the Flying Burrito Brothers because I thought Frank Zappa was in that band, hmm. and I have a really hard time taking anything Frank Zappa did seriously. And I looked it up, and it was like, no, he was not in that band. It was, you know, Graham Parsons. It was more like a sort of overlapped with the Birds, and I love the Birds as a band. So I, I want to thank this episode for actually uh, opening my heart to the Flying Burrito Brothers because I may actually look. I think I might have been confusing them with like was was Frank Zappa in like Captain Beefheart? What was the weird like? What was the other thing Frank Zappa did? All I know is his band was the Mothers of Invention. It was Frank Zappa and the Mothers of Invention? I don't yeah, think he I was just, in Beefheart. I could be wrong about. I that. I might have just seen. The name of one of these bands adjacent to Frank Zappa's in an article and just kind of transposed it all in my mm-hmm. mind. But I have literally, like, if you, if like two days ago you had said, What do you think about the Flying Burrito Brothers? I would have said, Not for me. Well, that it's a Frank terrible Zappa, name. A real, you and I it both, is a bad name. You and I both are, I think, we've been misled in our youths and adulthood <laughs> over mm-hmm. bands that we make assumptions about based on their name. Um, I forgot that Graham Parsons was in that, but Luke. I will just say to you as an aside, you would really love Graham Parsons. Like, you really would love the record Grievous Angel. It is so much up you, more your alley than mine, and I love it. I would highly recommend okay. that. He's a great okay. singer-songwriter, and it's got Emmylou Harris all over it. Oh, boy. That, uh, yeah, that's, now you're speaking my language. Yeah, so I liked that song. I looked it up. I'm actually going to check out that album. Um, and then then we go from that pretty shortly thereafter to now it's just John on the train trying to figure out what he's going to do about this kid and obviously not wanting to do what he knows he's about to do. Which is why he's being be... so rude to Birdbath, by the way. I'm sorry to interrupt, but I meant yeah. to say that before. No. He's being so rude to Birdbath because what Birdbath wants to what birdbath has to do he doesn't want to do and john understands that but john would have to do something even worse which is abduct a child <laughs> you know what i mean right. and so that's why we see right. him be pushing birdbath so hard yeah oh, that's a good point so then you know it's this is one of the few times i can remember maybe the only time so far where john sings a song and we don't see him singing the song mm-hmm. he's not and I think it's because we feel like it's been established in this universe. We know what that means now, right? Mm-hmm. Is that what you took from that? Yeah, non-diegetic is is the word. Um, so I know I love using that word because it makes me sound smart. But that's you I know, would too. Diegetic that means that, like, if you see somebody, if you see somebody playing music in a movie, or if they turn on the radio and then you start hearing the music, that's diegetic. But non-diegetic means that it's something that is used as you know, like bed music or. Or something along those lines. So we don't see I'm pre-diegetic, him for... <laughs> by the way. I don't change my diet. I'm yeah. going to have real problems. Problem. Uh, uh, wow. Okay. Great. Great word. And 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 um, aptly used there because we just hear him singing, but there's a line in there where he says something to the effect of, um, "I would." Uh, I, I I wrote it down, uh, but I might have been. I wrote it down on the fly, so I might have gotten it wrong. I think he says. I'd trade my soul for anyone else on this train, which is a lot to unpack, right? Mm-hmm. I think most simply kind of understood it would just mean he's saying I would trade places with anyone on this train. I want to be anyone who's not me, right? Mm-hmm. 
Um, that's, I guess, what I'm assuming. Or he just thinks his soul is black and terrible now because of all the things he's done. And he just wants a new soul. It's kind of like an off-brand Huey Lewis song. I want a new soul. In fact, that would be a real... You want to talk about a real departure. If they just, if every song John does in season two is a reworking of a Huey Lewis in the news song. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Season three. Everybody take notes for season three. I would not put it past Conrad. Anyway, that song was, you know... It's not like any of us are thinking as viewers that John is loving where he's at in his mm-hmm. life, but it's like as if we need to have a more clear indication of it. I mean, he is just he I think he hates what he has become or what the things he has had to do in order to basically try to achieve this mission. Yeah, and if we can talk about the scene for a second where the little girl does get abducted in the bathroom of the airport. This is a scene that it's not I I knew this scene was coming, and I was bracing for Mm -hmm. it this entire episode. It isn't gruesome or or bloody or anything, but it has got Mm -hmm. to be the most violent scene Mm -hmm. in the TV show so far. Or at least that's how I think of it. And again, you don't see tons, but it's John is so menacing in a way. He goes into the um, women's bathroom, the, the, the little girl keeps on telling her aunt that she saw the scary, sad man. The aunt is saying, well, we're in the ladies' room now. He can't come in here, so you're safe. And you know that John (laughs) has uh, broken down barriers other than gender barriers in his missions before. Mm -hmm. That's not going to stop him. And then you see his, his boots walk in. And it's like you see John represented in a way that isn't like through his own eyes or his family's mm-hmm. eyes, you just see him as the shadowy figure who is now lurking outside it's, of a bathroom stall. Yeah. And it is so unsettling. It's a really genius piece of filmmaking, I think, because that perspective at no time have we had the perspective of someone who is being menaced by John. Yeah, exactly. And his feet, he's the friggin' bad guy in that mm-hmm. moment. And you wonder, like, I don't know. I think I've kind of assumed that I get sister thinks that uh, her niece is just kind of like being a kid who's mm-hmm. sort of imagining things. Mm-hmm. I think she's kind of being like, you know, well, we're in the ladies room. He can't come in here. You know, just trying to kind of like, you know, I guess sort of placate her in a way. But man, it is. I'm afraid for those characters when his feet show up. And then I'm like, I have to remember, oh, wait, he's sort of ostensibly the good guy in this Mm -hmm. you know he's the guy we're kind of attached to as a character but and then i mean he does you're you're absolutely right it's not by the standards of this show it's not by no means the most violent thing that happens but it is also committed against civilians Mm -hmm. it is the he uses the door to presumably knock against sister unconscious uh, this is something this little girl i mean this is lifetime scarring for this little girl Mm -hmm. right um, whatever happens down the road in this moment, you are you are you are searing an event into the memory of a child. And that's really bad. You know, like, yeah. it's it, really bad. It's like the it's the height so far of menace meeting innocence. Right. Because like, OK, yes. so John knocks out the bagman's brother, like quite savagely. But the bagman's brother, while mostly being a kind of a just dopey guy with good intentions who wants to have a cold one. Um, (laughs) He is in, he is in on it. Right. And he is a player in this. And here you just have, you know, two, two completely innocent characters. One of whom is a what? Nine year old girl. And you just don't get more innocent than that in this TV show. And now here comes John. And it's very hard actually. 
and maybe this will happen more as the show goes on. Again, I'm, I'm we're getting close to the end of what I know about the show, but like, it's really hard to defend what John is doing, mm-hmm. um, unless I guess you're being extremely from a sort of like a philosophical standpoint. Mm-hmm. You're getting into this, and I forget what the principle it is, but this sort of moral let's just relativism. Go with, yes, or let's just go with Doc. Let's just go with uh, Mr. Spock. The needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, let's. It were. It was the great philosopher Gene Roddenberry who once wrote for Leonard Nimoy's character. You know, the idea. I guess if you're if you're gonna if there's any way to defend it, it's that this is it's either knock this ant out with a bathroom door and steal this kid or millions of people die. I guess you could make that argument. Mm. But in the moment, in that bathroom with those feet, you know, showing up, it is it's very hard to stand by what John is doing for me. And also, it doesn't help that all of his plans end up failing in some way, (laughs) you know. So you have to kind of if you're balancing and weighing things, you have to think about that, too. Not only are you going to like now you're going to get into um, kidnapping. And also, how did all your other bad ideas turn out, John? And the fact that, like, when he, you know, he and Alice end up at the diner with Tom and the little kid, and then that's, you know, Tom's basically goes to like, okay, well, Plan Z is just go kill um, the 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 physicist, right? Uh, is that who we're seeing on TV, or is that the is that like is that the like Ayatollah whatever? Like, who who is it that 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 now John is going to supposedly go kill? I thought we were seeing the candidate, not the physicist. Oh, the candidate. Okay. Yeah. So, in other words, okay, if that was an option, I just sounded like Bill Maher for a minute. That was upsetting. It just kill the candidate, okay? That's my attempt at a Bill Maher impression. <laughs> like, if that was an option, yeah, just go do it. Like, none of this other stuff had to happen. The money is now irrelevant. If you're really, if we're, if what we're really doing is just breaking into a compound and killing the the candidate we could have skipped to that part we could have john john could have gotten a lot less physically hurt if that's what we're trying to get to and in fact he probably didn't even need to work for mcmillan of course you wouldn't have a show yeah one episode but it just it bothers me that that's an option because i feel like a lot of people's lives have been Stephen chu a lot of people's lives have been altered irrevocably because of these harebrained schemes that john's hatching on the fly because he's trying to stay he's trying to do what his dad is telling him to do yeah but let's be logical for a second and think about sorry it's, why start now <laughs> luke use your brain what is it are we turning this into some sort of bill maher debate show i didn't mean let's be logical you're not <laughs> not being logical but what i meant was mm-hmm. um let's take a step back and just like look at this from the perspective as if we don't know the story from the ground level we don't know these characters intimately as tv viewers but instead we are american citizens reading a newspaper after one of these actions has happened, let's say it goes public, we find out either A, the CIA was involved in fixing an election in a foreign country, or the CIA literally assassinated a candidate uh, in an electoral process. Um, now, we're having this conversation in January, in January of 2020, so the idea of uh, America assassinating uh, Iranians is, uh, I guess... Yeah. I, I don't know, uh, apt or ironic or what have you, but not seeing the nitty gritty details, you understand why the first recourse of the CIA would be to to influence the election, not kill a prominent figure in another country. Yes. Okay. I, I get what you're saying. 
I guess I just feel like, yeah, there's just a trail of destruction that's been left by 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 John, and and he's doing it at the behest of his dad, and it just feels like, like again, I I just really feel like that kid is like maybe never going to be okay. Off of, yeah, like, I'm scared watching it, and I'm a grown man, and I understand that this is a fictional t- TV show, and I may never be okay from just <laughs> when his feet show up in that shot. Should we take a quick assessment of the damage that? John slash this mission has caused so far because again from a TV perspective mm. we're invested in Leslie's life right and we don't want Leslie to start drinking mm-hmm. again we want him to get together with his son but in the grand scheme of things like I was saying before you kind of balance that out you say okay you know the one man went back to drinking and maybe doesn't get to reunite with his son or whatever's going to happen with Leslie there. Right. Um, but, okay, we definitely have two deaths regarding this mission on John's hands, right? And those are the ones that the Department of Tough Cool Guys are now uh, investigating, right? right? We have the Edgar ba- the Barrios, man. the kid. Yep. Well, Edgar Barrios, who f- unwittingly finds the bag. Now, the thing is, Edgar Barrios should not get the, um, or Barros, I should say, he should not get the death penalty for stealing that bag of money, but he did steal a bag of money from the airport where he worked. Wait, so Jose, I don't think of... he's the one who died. One of the wrestler brothers were, was killed. Oh, good. Point. He's not dead. It's one uh, of the wrestler. It's one of his brothers who was the yes. first murder victim. Yes. Thank you. Good point. Yeah, John's just like under a pile of Brazilians yeah. and starts randomly swinging his knife. So yeah. So that there you go. I mean, uh, that's that's an even more innocent in my mind because they just at their house probably uh, presumably watching MMA on TV and then mm-hmm. this guy comes in and then they just kind of take him down methodically which would be it's not unreasonable um and so yeah you're right that's a murder victim uh the bagman is a murder victim again he's in on something and so that's a little bit um although your heart goes i mean there's they really humanize those two guys as Jaywick Sands kids you know mm-hmm. yeah you kind of like you kind of look at them and you go like, well, you understand how somebody grows up to have certain beliefs and ideologies when they're treated like absolute shit mm-hmm. because of the color of their skin and their their you know religion, I guess. Um, so, so that's I mean, I, you're really sad to it, see. though, right? Though those are the two real. Well, I mean, murders. Let's, how Steve? I mean, Stephen Chu is not going to be okay. Oh, you're right. I'm sorry. That's huge. Yes, uh, uh, giving somebody permanent brain damage is definitely twice. He twice is is oh that's right we don't we haven't seen him since he's does he thrown survive in... I mean yeah we I don't does he I mean you might know you've watched the show I'm I don't know if he's where I am at in the experience of watching the show I don't even know if he's alive or dead two two direct hits from a giant truck is a lot yeah I can't remember honestly but you're right that's the other major so piece that of one damage. time I pushed you in front of a truck yeah, right <laughs> can I smell your hair you're getting very close though Andrew to being able to play. <laughs> Hearts and souls on a giant piano. So yeah. I think that's, I'll call that a win. So, any, like, okay, so who else? So, okay, so actual deaths, those two guys, pretty bad physical injury, Stephen Chu. Um, what else? What else is the damage that is sort of being wrought? Well, that little kid now has uh, a get sister, has had her face smashed in by a bathroom door. That's traumatizing for her. Mm-hmm. The kid has been kidnapped. That's traumatizing. Um, Leslie has been shot in the face. It's not just about him reconnecting with his son. He has been shot in the face, certainly. Who's in the bag? Who's in the backpack that John is carrying around for that whole episode that he keeps falling on? Who is that again? Wait. Oh, shoot. I, uh, you know what I'm talking about? Is it, is it the guy like, who's... Is it the the original guy who stole the bag? 
It is. He kidnaps the guy. He kidnaps the airport worker, I think, in a gambit to sit down with his uh, wrestling Brazilian uh, brothers. brothers. Well, that kid is also, let me tell you, yeah. some of those scenes where he's falling down multiple flights of stairs onto the kid, mm-hmm. I, that kid's pretty jacked up after that, presumably. Um, Am I 100% Alice, listen, right about that, by the way? Like, that's, well, it that's sounds my like best a logical memory. guess. Yeah, I think that's yeah. right, but somebody could write in if I'm wrong. Um, but that actually kind of, in a way, brings us to Alice, which is something I want to talk about. So Alice, I feel like there's this moment where she shows up in that airport. It's a kind of a surprise. I may be forgetting what led up to it, but it feels like a surprise to me as a viewer that she's there. And I almost wonder if John's hallucinating. There she is. She has the dog. Is that the dog? Oh, how about the guy, the poor tiny policeman or the, you know, the not the tiny policeman, because that's one of the things, but the policeman who's got PTSD and can't handle loud noises and then the stealing of his therapy dog, that's a pretty intense thing to do to someone. It is. And, but the reason I wanted to rack this up is because I was trying to like draw a line between what we are feeling about these characters and seeing these kind of more um, – m- this more micro damage on people as TV watchers versus uh-huh. if this were a real-life scenario and everything hit the headlines and we realized – we right. don't know who John and Tom is. We just know that the CIA right. had an, had a um, right. had a mission, and in this mission, they end up killing an, Iran- an Iranian um, uh, bag man, for lack of a better word. And uh, there's also collateral damage of a wrestler, two deaths, and maybe the Stephen Chu. Those are the big ones. I don't think anybody's going to get super concerned about the psychological damage of a you know sure. middling police officer. Right. Okay. But let me just say, I do think to maybe move it out of that way of gauging things and just into the characters of the show again, I, I'm, I have mixed feelings about Alice being like, I don't care what you've done. I mean, I like that she's supporting him and loves him, but you also feel like that's a moment where she's losing a bit of her humanity. Um, or is that just driven by her deep love for John and she's just trying to basically tell him, I still accept you. Like, I don't think you're tainted by this. I think it's based on um, her deep love of John and also probably trying to get John, you know, maybe trying to throw him a rope to, to maybe get out of this life. Yeah. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this show kind of like nitpicking and saying this timeline doesn't add up because also I'm not convinced that I'm the most savvy viewer. So there are certainly things that I could have missed. But I am, I'll put it this way I'm very confused and somewhat dubious how she was able to travel there so quickly and even know where to find him because it seemed like in the montage, John didn't know he was heading to the airport until you know, some point in the past hour while he's figuring out what to do about getting the money back. It seemed like that was a very last-minute decision of his. So how did Alice find him in the airport? I also was confused as to why she had the service dog, although I did find an answer to that online. There is a scene that we will see later that explains that in a flashback. So I hope that's not too much of a spoiler, but it does make sense. Also, I know John's dealing with some shit, but I would expect him to be more excited about that dog being there. Dog seems to be one of the only living things on planet earth that brings him any comfort well that and alice so you get alice and the dog and you're set although maybe that's part of well i don't know why but he calls his mom what do you what do you 
chalk that up to? I didn't even know he had a mom. I mean, I, I assume at some point he was born, yeah. but I don't have any real thoughts about his mom as a character on the show. Yeah, I mean, I wrote that I wrote that down in the notes, too, um, and I have a little bit more of an understanding of where that's going to lead, but um, it is definitely shocking in the moment because it's really out of the blue, and the only thing I can chalk it up to, which I think your question was, was John's continued emotional and mental unraveling. <laughs> And just reaching yeah. out. I mean, listen, this is the same man who called a dog at one point. So I guess calling yeah. your mom at some point is going to mm. be in the cards. I'd call a dog. I'd call a dog. Yeah. It's hard It's hard to not, uh, you know, cross streams from old TBTL to over here on this show. But now, maybe, as people are hearing this, uh, this show may be living in a completely independent universe. So welcome, new listeners. Um, uh, if we occasionally say something that makes even less sense than everything else, it's probably some inside joke from our other show mm-hmm. that we're accidentally saying. Um, or I'm having a phase. I have another. I have another question. I mean, we can't rule that out, but I have another question. How does Alice know that this kid is Agat's kid? I am assuming that John explains it to her off screen when John off goes screen. into the women's restroom. Yes. Oh, okay. I'm assu- that that okay. that I it makes sense because the way the show is just kind of chopped up. Like, I think she said I can't remember exactly the order of things, but she says, you know, I don't blame you for this, and I can't remember if she offers to help or or what. And then the next thing you know, well, they're both in the bathroom. I mean, but she looks. She's obviously disturbed. I feel yes. like she. She's like, I love you, and I want to help you, but I think what she means is, I want to help you come home, mm-hmm. or I want to help you. I'll help you get the drop on some real bad guys. I don't think she has any idea that she's signing up to go into the woman's bathroom and participate in an abduction. But then, I mean, obviously, she knows Aget because they had the random thing of going to Milwaukee on the same flight and then rental car. But I was wondering how it was that she figured out that it was Aget's kid, mm-hmm. or that. Is this the first that she's realizing? I could have forgotten something. Is this the first she's realizing that there's any overlap between Aget's life and John's life? That's a really good question. And now, I'm sorry, now my brain is spinning because that's right. You asked me the – was that your original question? At what point did she realize it was Aget's my, kid? Well, right, because – so what I, know, what I remember of this so far is she meets – Aget, they really hit it mm-hmm. off. No, you know what? She knows because there's that time Aget is showering, and she goes into Aget's uh, hotel room because they have adjoining rooms, and she looks and she sees stuff related to John. So that's she knows that Aget is there to investigate her husband on some level. She knows that much, right? Yes, she definitely has made that connection because I believe okay. she's supposed to swap her information with Aget just as, you know— uh, friends, road dog sisters and friends, right? Sure. But then, right before that happens, she finds out that a get is connected to this whole thing. I believe Tom shows up at her door and kind of spills the beans, and then she never ends up sending her information to a get. As a matter of fact, I believe there's a scene where a get pops into her hotel room and says, "I haven't gotten your email yet," and she says, "I'm mm. about to send it right now," and never does. And it's kind of a a very close call. Now mm-hmm. let's just fast forward to um, kind of. Diner scene. Alice uh, tells Tom that he's a coward, says, I'm taking this girl Mm -hmm. and I'm going to wait in the car. She actually drives away and pulls over somewhere. And then um, and now she is about to email a get again. We see that she's definitely made the connection because she's pulled up a get's email address and is about to tell her, I've got your daughter. But I'm still with you. At what point did she make the connection that this is a get's kid? 
are we assuming that John right. told her that? Which was well, your original you question, proposed. and I misunderstood. Yeah. Well, yeah, but I mean, I guess, I guess it's. I mean, it's not that important. She under she knows mm-hmm. it somehow, and you're right. Maybe John just told her before he went into the bathroom, like, "Here's what I'm going to in there to get." Um, but or maybe he was just like, you know, the women's bathroom is so much nicer than the men's mm-hmm. bathroom. Yes. traditionally, just like less gross. So that's where I'm going to go. Um, then. Uh, this looks like a funny just little moment. Like the kid has a cell phone, right? Right, which is hilarious because she's been abducted. She's being you know spirited all over you know Europe. Well, really, just basically Paris, but still. And then it's like her phone rings, mm-hmm. and it's her mom. It's like, oh, the kid had a phone. Of course, the kid had a phone. A lot of kids have phones now, but it just it puts it all in this other perspective. Like she. Could theoretically could have called, I guess, her mom at any point. Called her mom or called uh, whatever the equivalent the of nine one one is. Um, that reminds but, me. Actually, we learn. Oh, gosh, I'm so sorry. My brain is all over the place. I think we, I think we learn later on what nine one one is in this show. I could be, I could be mistaken. Hmm. They're confusing with another show that I've watched. Um, but uh, yeah, that is that is interesting. And, and then what happens next? I'm still very confused about. Because, and now we're at the end of the episode, there's only one thing uh, on this list that I didn't mention. I don't think it really matters much, but it's just, it's when Lakeman doesn't show up for the speech and then Lawrence has to make it, and it is bad. Oh my gosh, I I did forget about that. (laughs) Maybe that's not hugely important, although he's talking to one of the investigators afterwards, I think, so we're getting some, I guess, foreshadowing that they're pulling Lawrence back into that whole investigation, again, probably in the interest of trying to get to... um, get to john but so yeah i mean we're at the end of the episode and my expectation as a sort of traditional tv viewer is again is going to be first of all terrified as to the whereabouts of her daughter and second of all extremely furious with alice as to like why the f do you have my kid and like bringing the, like she's i'm expecting i get to be a liam neeson character from one of the nine taken movies um where she's just like, I have a very specific set of skills, and I'm going to come kill you now. You took my daughter. You messed with the wrong investigator from Luxembourg. And then she says the thing that's quite shocking, keep her. Right. So, we don't have an explanation for that yet. Yeah. Uh, my question for you is, do you believe, and maybe we know this, and I'm just forgetting the details, does get know that she knows the woman she's talking to is the woman that she shared a car with? Good question. That's a really good question. Well, I mean, see, in order for her to know that Alice is the person she had the car with, she would have to understand that Alice and John are related. She knows that the kid, her kid has been with the sad man. Oh, and by the way, an older sad man, which is yes. a really great way. Yes. It's a really great way to draw the connection or the lineage of, oh, shit. And I never even thought of that. Like, yeah, you know what? John's pretty melancholy, and guess who else is pretty melancholy? His flipping dad who yeah. sucks. Yeah. Like, so that was kind of a cool moment. But, um, but so she knows obviously that there's the Lakeman connection. But does she have an Alice to Lakeman connection? She definitely I mean, and, has she... the name Alice because that appears on her whiteboard at some point. Remember, he walks. Mm. It's a shocking scene for John when he's at the police station and he walks into a Getz office or maybe just like that general area. He's there by himself for a moment or maybe the little girl is there and he's just staring at the board and he sees his wife's name on the whiteboard and he's like, 
oh no, like that's really bad that it's that these um, investigators have somehow connected her name to him because she shouldn't be a part of this. Um, I yeah. will say one more thing about this uh, get reaction, which is for me this plays a real central role, sort of in in the show. Do you remember when Tom is talking to John and he he assesses a get as being a good detective because essentially yes, she's, a, she's bad a bad mother. parent and he says something yeah. about like she was investigated for neglect and now as the show is going on and we realize wow she has another daughter who's in London what like where has this daughter been the whole time what is going on it is all sort of fitting together that uh, I mean because everything is a parallel right you had like the you had the bag man and his dad. That whole uh, storyline was very similar to, you know, Tom and John, right? And mm-hmm. then you have the, the Edward equivalent, the guy with the, the beard, the brother of the bagman. Um, and now you also have this parallel, I believe, between a get and the way she's treating her child in the service of some bigger mission, which I'm now confused as to what it is because it's no longer to right. solve the murder because she basically has and she let the murderer walk away. It's now to some broader mission involving money. Um, but I right. think it still comes back to a lot of this is about parenting. Yes, you're totally right. I guess I'm I'm giving a get the benefit of the doubt at this point because I haven't seen far enough into the show to know what she's doing here. But I, I, I'm choosing to believe it's not that she just doesn't love her daughter or doesn't care. It has to be she thinks that somehow her daughter is safer with Alice than she would be with Aget. Or, like, I don't – I'm assuming she's not saying keep her. Like, she's yours now. Raise her. I assume she's saying it like, you know, basically like take care of her for now. I'm going to be there, but I've got some things to do. That's mm-hmm. what I'm choosing to believe. If Aget is really that kind of detached as a mother – uh, that'll be hard for me to deal with because I, I sort of like the uh, get character. Yeah, I mean, I'm with you. I took it in the same manner. But anyway, it was it was another like I, I was genuinely and you know the beauty part of having a real shit memory for this stuff. I think like I have and you've said that you have mm-hmm. is I've already seen this episode and when a get said keeper, my jaw hit the floor for the second time. Mm-hmm. Like. It's, you know, it's all new to me, apparently, because there are these plot points in the show when something happens. I'm like, oh, no, you didn't. And I'm watching a show, an episode I've already watched once, but because I've completely forgotten what happened, it's still exciting. For me, I re- I think I remember that a little bit more, but for me, it was the um, birdbath knocking himself out with the dimes because the mm. whole time, because I remembered all the conversations about the dimes. I thought it was so clever, etc. But this whole time I'm rewatching this episode and thinking... But I can't picture you hitting a get. What do you end up doing? What do you end mm-hmm. up doing? And then <laughs> even when he's like he takes the, the other pathway and he's gonna cut her off, how does he know that city so well is another question. Um but uh and then he knocks himself out and I'm like, Oh yeah, you dummy, you knocked yourself it's out. A little bit I don't know if it's exactly like this, but have you ever had the experience where you're recording a football game and then inadvertently you somehow see the final score, or even just the score at the end of a certain mm-hmm. quarter, mm-hmm. and then you spend the whole time watching, going, "How does they? How do they yeah, get to that point?" That's exactly right. How do they get there? <laughs> and half the time, I remembered the score that I thought was a spoiler for me. And like, I remember the last time I did that to myself, sometime this season, 
I swore that the score was something that it wasn't. And so, like, up until the last seconds of the game, I'm like, how are they going to make this happen? And it turns out I just remembered it wrong. I guess it added some extra tension to the game, though. Yeah. Uh, So I guess that's probably everything I – oh, you know what? Quickly, before we go, let's talk about the the, uh, music. Yeah, the credits. I want to talk about that, too. Big part of season one, and and literally the first episode of this show that I ever watched after you told me about it, the thing that stood out to me was how unlikely the 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 season one intro song is or credit song was. I mean, we've talked a lot about the credit sequence, which is pretty genius, but just the fact that they use this kind of British folky song from the seventies, I think, uh, is it was just so antithetical to this kind of show, and I loved it. And now here we go, season two. It's Beastie Boys. It's Sure Shot. Everybody. It's much more sort of. It's just a whole different. You know, it's a whole different credits package. And all of a sudden, everyone's grown up, and it's it's almost celebratory in a way. Like I'll put it this way: I'm with it. I'm fine with it as a progression, I guess. But I'm glad that that season one didn't start with Sure Shot. That would have really put me off. Like. I would not have been the same show for me. Yeah, I agree. There was something very special and arty about the season one credits. I I never skipped them. I watched them every single time. Um, And seeing the characters as kids, which we never really see in the TV show, you start like watching those opening credits for clues. Um, And I don't, I don't want to like beat up on the show. I think the season two credits are fine, and it would have been interesting. I mean, clearly, there was probably supposed to be more seasons in Conrad's vision, so maybe each season would have had a different feel to it. And here's the one thing I will say about the the credits. Having seen episode one of season two twice now and seeing how much of it is through John's perspective when he's still dealing with his concussion from that bike injury and that weird kind of, um, uh, not fisheye, the opposite, like myopic worldview yes. he literally has which, now, by which the is way, very confusing. Have you ever gotten a migraine? No. I, 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 when I was a kid, I used to get them occasionally, and they actually weren't, I was lucky, it wasn't that it was like crazy headache pain, but I would start to get tunnel vision, mm-hmm. like exactly like what that character has. Mm-hmm. And uh, I remember it happening one time at a pep rally when I was in school, like in junior in high school, and just being kind of freaked out because all of a sudden it was like that kind of view of the world. And um, when I watch that, it makes me, it really stresses me out. I think it's part of why I find his, his uh, again, degradation or whatever you want to call it as a physical human so hard to watch. It reminds me of an experience I've had a time or two, but there's something extremely claustrophobic about looking at somebody who's trying to make their way through some weird city when that's all they can see. Yes, and I think that the credits sort of reflect that a little bit. I think the the credits, it's this fast pace, not particularly, I think, as clever as the first season that you could, you know, it's very much like it could have been a video for sure shot, right? Like a very fast paced clipped, um, like kind of sometimes out of focus coming into focus, um, almost like the beginning of Saturday night live going down the stairs of some comedy club or whatever, like frenetic sort of vibe to it. Alice's character has this big kind of smile on her Mm -hmm. face. I mean, it's so, again, it's almost, it's effervescent in this way that the, 
first season credits really aren't. Part of it, though, I I think, again, I don't know if I'm just making this up. Part of it, though, I I thought maybe it's supposed to reflect a little bit of how John is seeing the world in this weird kind of, again, myopic uh, kind of weird, fuzzy way. Like, like a lot of stuff is coming at him, and he's having trouble sorting it all out. And this is a small point that they set us up for. But remember, we realized, uh, I think, in probably the last episode of the show that we did uh, for season one, is that um, Sure Shot is the nickname that Lawrence has given, Lawrence LaCroix has given John. Remember, he calls him Sure Shot in the bathroom now. And isn't it also. One of the songs. What's the what's Beastie Boys song? Does Edward put on as his playlist for kicking Major Butt for his brother? Uh, that is, I think that is Sure Shot. Yeah, I think we said that. I I'm, now I'm blanking, but I think we brought all that together in the last yeah. episode. Yeah. So there's also yeah, there's like an Edward. There's a couple of probably different connection points. And again, it's weird because it's like I admire even if it doesn't work for me as much as the first season. I admire that that like you know. They're not just sticking with the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I like admire that they're kind of trying to push the show forward, and I think you're r- absolutely right. Probably if there was a third or fourth season, they would have go- you know they would have gone and maybe gone back to sort of something more downbeat. Maybe um, this was this was sort of uh, programmus interruptus, I guess. So we don't know what the long term arc they were trying to create was. The last thing um, I wouldn't mind doing before we say goodbye because we've been going on for quite some time now is. Um, uh, playing the tape of that speech that Lawrence gives that he's unprepared for. Leslie was supposed <laughs> to give the speech, and then Leslie gets shot in the face, and then John is supposed to give the speech, but now John isn't there. So uh, Lawrence has to give it himself. It's terrible, but my favorite, favorite moment <laughs> is what happens afterwards. I'm going to play the whole thing and just let it roll through. Okay. But he's okay. done giving the speech. It's bad. And then they cut to him standing atop a stairwell, apparently in this convention center or wherever this is happening, and um, one of the investigators uh, yeah. looking for John has caught up with him, but they're not talking about the investigation. The very first question he has for the <laughs> investigator is, <laughs> how bad was my speech? Macmillan Industrial Piping. So Lawrence is walking up to the lectern. Hey. How are you? Cool. Not unlike John. Right. I'm I thought not. he was Go ahead. I thought for one second he was going to try to pretend he was John Lake. Uh-huh. Like how, how are like you when doing? He said that. Cool. Yeah, cool. Yeah. Like I kind of thought maybe oh, maybe is he is this the plan? I mean, I don't know what the I, I don't know what the goal of that would be, but I was like he's doing a Lakeman impression. Maybe he's going to try to pretend he's Lakeman, but of course he doesn't. Hey. How are you? Cool. I'm not John Lakeman. He's a, um, a no-show. No-show here. So, I'm going to take this one. We do that, too. Duckled nut stuff. Only better and with more cost efficiency. Probably. (sighs) Fuck. 
just walks away. Did my speech suck? It did, right? <laughs> I think so. But I don't understand the technical side of your business. Me neither. <laughs> so that's it. It cuts to it. him saying, does my speech suck? Probably, but I don't understand the technical side of your business. I love that. That might yeah. have been one of my favorite parts of the show is that quick little joke. Yeah, it was great. I had this thought of like, maybe he's going to kind of like in the way that Lakeman surprises us mm-hmm. that one time where he really nails it. Mm-hmm. I was like, well, maybe he'll find it. You know, he'll find it in himself. And it's like, nope, he is not finding it in himself. Lawrence is in over his head. This when, once we once we learn his secret about how in over his head he is. Um, everything kind of becomes clearer for his character, I think. Yeah. Well, uh, like I said, I, I think next episode is probably the last one that I've ever seen. Okay. <laughs> or the, the final one that I've already watched. So pretty soon I am personally going to be in Uncharted Waters, and I am excited about it because I want to see what happens to all these characters, including uh, Lawrence LaCroix. Yeah, and I mentioned this um, earlier. I mean, we do know they set up in the diner scene near the end. I believe that um, John, uh, Tom tells John that he has to find a gun. And so there's yes. his next part of the mission. What does he say? There are like, there are uh, 90, I forget the number, but he lists the exact number of guns yes. or something. And then you've got to get one of them. Yep. Which part of my brain is like, yeah, this is why there's less gun violence in places where you know the exact number of guns and, and they're hard where to they get. Are. Yeah. Not to politicize this right at the end of the show, but all right, well, um we do so many different versions of T- of the TBTL universe that I can't remember which ones have special sign-offs and which ones don't. <laughs> where does McMillan men fall on that list? Do we have do we say Oh, c- double great. Oh, that's we talk right. about keeping it double double we great. keep it double great. Yeah, I don't think it's a I don't think it's a call and response. I think you just no. say that. And of course, now here I am. Uh, it's Mel Torme, secret agent man that we go out with, right? Had to remember What does that he too. say? Though? What does Rob Saperstein say about the kayak when he's standing in front of it? Because I feel like you should say <laughs> that. And then I should I say and remember to keep it double great. And then we say RIP Rob Saperstein. <laughs> or we can just go with something more simplistic, which is. No, why would we ever? <laughs> what does he say? What does he say when he's got his hand over the cut in the kayak? I can't it's remember so the great. exact verbiage. All right. Well, let's study that during this week, uh, you know, in between this and the next episode. And we'll come back with a really killer closing number for this. In the meantime, thanks for listening. Uh, we'll be back with another episode in a week. Make sure to keep things double great. All right. There's be a man who leads a life of danger. Everyone he meets, he stays a stranger With every move he makes Another chance he takes Odds are he won't live to see tomorrow Secret agent man Secret agent man They've given you a number 